Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Let's get to an investor, Howard Ward, CIO of Growth Equities at Gabelli Funds. Howard, let's start right here. From what you've heard, and that can change, but what you've heard so far, is this a game changer for you? Hi, Jonathan. Um, well, I'll tell you, yesterday um, I was very uh, optimistic because the message that I was getting yesterday was that the exist- existing vaccines would be fairly efficacious against the new variant. Um, and the, the data that we do have, which is that 70% of the country is vaccinated, 80% of those people over the age of 12, and we're administering about 1.8 million doses a day. So we have made tremendous progress. Unfortunately, not, not enough as we should have made, but we are on that, we're on that path, and so I was optimistic. Obviously, the comments out of the Moderna CEO uh, in the FT this morning are alarming. But again, um, there is nothing new data-wise. It's going to take a couple of weeks, I think, for them to have a good handle on just how good the existing vaccines are and how long it will take to, to develop one that's more focused on the Omicron uh, variant. Howard Ward, and so, can, can I don't think it's a, I don't think there's enough data to support this being a game changer yet. Howard, you know, what it means is we have to stay invested as well. Do we shift the investment and do we shift our new investment? The marginal dollar we're going to place here with this uncertainty does that change? Uh, Tom, I don't think so. And and, and uh, of course, you know, I started to invest. I started working on Wall Street in the 1970s, and so I've seen this economy and this stock market weather all kinds of turbulence over the years. And essentially every material downturn in the market was a good buying opportunity. And I suspect this will be just the same, a good buying opportunity for those investors that have the willingness and patience to invest for a period of years. And so, uh, you know, the focusing on what's going to happen this week or next week, it, it does consume us more than it should uh, all too often. And that's hard. It's hard to avoid that. But we really do try to focus on the long term and, and really a, a lot of good news that this, this economy is very vibrant and it's a technology driven global economy. And there's just so much good about that. This is not the 1970s uh, where we had, you know, 15 percent inflation, uh, stagflation, uh, 16 percent five year treasuries, 15 percent 30 year treasuries. Inflation went from 5 percent to 15 percent in a couple of years. That's not this economy. And uh, so we've been spoiled. And, uh, you know, so circumstances will change. But this is still an extremely vibrant, positive economy growing this year and growing for the next couple of years as far as we can see. Well, the economy may be vibrant, but you're not seeing that reflected in rates. The 10-year yield is south of 143 this morning. Do yields have to stay in this lower range in order for equities to continue doing well and for it continue to be dips that you want to buy? Well, that's a good question because we would anticipate some upward pressure on rates, I think, as, as everyone has been anticipating, uh, given the fact that the economy is is rebounding strongly from 2% growth last quarter to 5 6 7% growth <clears throat> this quarter. 
uh, onto a, probably something with a 4% growth handle next year. Uh, and with the Fed beginning to remove the uh, monetary stimulus that's been so important to stocks and to rate lower rates. So yeah, rates should drift higher. Um, if rates go back to where they were pre-COVID, we're back to 190 or 2% on the 10-year, on the so up 50, 60 basis points. And, and, and I think that would be my base case scenario over the next uh, three to six months. Um, and that's okay. And that, that might create some indigestion for stocks, but very weatherable. We, we can certainly deal with that. If we're completely wrong on the transitory nation, nature of this inflation and it becomes more persistent, uh, and rates spike materially higher, you know, three or four percent kinds of uh, handles on a note, then, yeah, uh, yeah that's going to be a problem for multiples for stocks. TK, what's the grade for this tree? This tree, I mean, I'm going with seven for, and a half feet for, this year. How about oh, Ward's no. going with something like 12, 15? Uh, for those of you on radio, I mean, Pharaoh took the Howard Ward playbook and it's got the cute white lights and the thing is like, what, 27 feet tall? How big is that thing, Howard? Uh, you know what? I think it looks bigger than it is. It's nine feet. Is it nine real feet. or it, fake? It's, it is real. It's from New Hampshire. There we go. Oh, there we go. There we go. <laughs> Tom's proud of you. Made in the USA. <laughs> Howard, next year, I mean, Mario's got the ugly colored lights going. You got to go with the ugly colored lights like me. <laughs> Howard, it's good to catch you up. It's good to see you. It's got a lovely treat. <laughs> I bet he has. Howard Ward of Cabelli Funds. Thank you. We got an advantage now. We go to Houston, Texas. Victoria Fernandez has the advantage. She gets to work with Robert Dahl, which is always a wonderful thing, chief market strategist at Crossmark Global Investments. Victoria, if we get a JP Morgan 80 or 100 or 110, whatever dollars a barrel, you're hardwired to this in Texas. What does it mean for America if we get a sustained higher oil price? Well, I think you have twofold here, Tom. I mean, obviously for the energy companies, they've been looking for these prices to go higher. They need that revenue to go ahead and put that CapEx in that you guys were just talking about. But we're talking so much about inflation and the effects that it's having on the consumer and what that's going to mean. Obviously, that is where a consumer feels it first and foremost is when it comes to oil. I think we have a lot of concerns here as to what OPEC Plus is going to do. We're going to hear from them later this week. So we'll see what plays mm -hmm. in to that along with releasing from the reserves. So I think there's a lot of balls in the air when it comes to energy right now. And just like we're talking about the variant, we have right. to wait and see. Same thing's <clears throat> going to happen with energy. Your clientele is a great cross-section of people out there working at it every day. They've made a pot of money, whatever, and they go see Crossmark. I get that. How scared are they of Omicron? How scared are they of 2022? You know, it's interesting. I think this morning, and obviously I haven't talked to clients yet this morning, but I think we might hear a little bit of a different tone. You hear Powell coming out and using that word uncertainty. We know the markets don't like that word. So that's going to add some volatility. You have the Moderna CEO coming out and saying that things are not going to be good. That's going to feed into the psyche of the consumer. We've talked many times about how we think the consumer is leading um, this economy right now and that strength of the consumer we need to rely on. So I think there's going to be maybe a little bit more concern from an investor perspective, but I think that's where my job comes into play, where I need to tell people, take a step back. As you guys have said all morning, we don't have the data yet. Let's not change our outlook and our strategy 
until we know more. Victoria, I just want to pick up on something the chairman said in that pre-prepared statement ahead of his testimony later, and you picked up on that word uncertainty. The recent rise, and here's the quote, in COVID-19 cases and the emergence of the Omicron variant posed downside risk to employment and economic activity. That's well understood. Then he said this, an increased uncertainty for inflation. What do you think that actually means, increased uncertainty for inflation? Does that mean upside risk to inflation? Does it mean downside risk too? What does it mean? I think it's actually an upside risk at first because it's adding to that whole, and I know we hate to use the word, but it's adding to that transitory component if supply chains do not improve. You know, we talked a couple weeks ago and we were saying we think we might be at peak supply chain issues. We started to see shipping costs come down. We started to see a little bit of um, pressure being relieved at the ports. If the variant now causes people not to go to work, it causes restrictions and shutdowns, all of that's going to ramp up again and that's going to lead back into how much of this is transitory? What are we looking at for inflation? So I think it's an upside concern um, in the short term. Longer term, I think we're still looking at inflation coming down next year to around 3%. So how do you position then for the medium and longer term, Victoria? Yeah, so Kaylee, what we told our clients before last week and what we're gonna continue to tell them for now is that we need to have that balanced portfolio. We like those growth, those tech names that are in there and we don't wanna get rid of them, but we could trim those and build a little bit more on the cyclical component of our portfolio. Some of those consumer facing names that here in the fourth quarter would traditionally do well. And we think they will once we get past the initial reaction of this variant. So names we've added like a CVS, um, a Walgreens Boots we've added, Lululemon, um, even a name like Prologis, which is a REIT um, in regards to logistics for shipping. So I think you can start looking at some more of those cyclical names to balance out your portfolio, especially when you see the credit market still holding pretty strong. That's a bullish signal for us. Victoria, great to catch up. As always, it's good to see you. Victoria Fernandez there of Crossmark on this market. Yesterday was a magical day for us within the stress of Omicron to speak to Peter Hotez and the good people at Johns Hopkins as well. And what it's about is the dispersion of our intellectual capital with Hotez going from Rockefeller University down to Baylor College over the years, or Lauren Sauer of Johns Hopkins going out to Nebraska to the first rate program at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. And this is really serious adult stuff about special pathogens, like think Ebola as well. Lauren, you are looking at an unvaccinated population. My working number is 13 times greater death. Is Omicron a special pathogen that will get this nation vaccinated? When we think about special pathogens, we think about the tools in our toolkit that allow us to treat, to manage, to, to save lives of the patients who get the special pathogens. And I think right now we're still waiting to see what's going to happen with the vaccines um, around Omicron. We know some of our tools work, our tests still work, we know masks still work, a lot of our treatments will still work on Omicron, and we may need boosters to improve our ability to protect people against this new variant. Mm -hmm. But I think right now we can say that Getting your vaccine is still critically important. An unfair question, but to you, within all your resources, including back at Johns Hopkins, do you have a timeline of when we'll get these answers? I would guess we'll see updates on the vaccine in the next couple weeks, science updates, understanding how the vaccine will affect um, the 
how, how the, the variant will affect the vaccine efficacy. Um, and then I would say we could see new approvals for a vaccine if it has to be updated in the next few months. So I would say somewhere between two and four months, we'll see updates to the vaccine. Science is working around the clock. And it's really incredible how fast these changes are happening to manage um, the, the, the changes to the virus that we're seeing. Well, and Lauren, we've seen the virus change before. We have been here in a similar moment before. We maybe are still in it with Delta in many places. What stops the cycle of this happening again and again? Um, just like Dr. Hota said yesterday, getting that vaccine rate high, 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 um, as many vac people vaccinated as possible is critical to stopping and slowing down these um, these new variants. So uh, the variants move through unvaccinated populations easier. And um, when we start to see them appear in, in populations with lower vaccines, they can get they can also move out of those populations populations quicker. So getting as many people vaccinated as possible is huge. I, I agree with him. I'd love to see 85% here in the U.S. Not only does it protect against the variants, but it also protects against the already circulating strains um, and reduces the likelihood of severe disease and death. Um, we are seeing unnecessary death. We're seeing unnecessary strain on our hospitals and healthcare systems and on our healthcare workers in particular. Well, Lauren, it's not just about vaccinations as well. It's also about the treatment of people who do end up testing positive and getting sick. Do we know anything about the effectiveness of treatments? We know that vaccine efficacy can change depending on the variant. Does treatment as well? As of right now, um, it's looking like our treatments will still be useful. Um, we still have su incredible supportive care here in the United States to, to treat and take care of patients who make their way into the hospital because of COVID. Um, and the, the newly developed treatments look like they will continue to work against Omicron, which is great to hear. It's great news. But we are still seeing the development of new therapeutics coming down the pike and um, those will continue. Those developments will continue to happen even as new variants pop up. For now, those tools still work for us, yeah. and the and the hope is that we'll keep people out of the hospital um, as the vaccines mm -hmm. evolve and and develop. Lauren, your observation: I'm migrating from the East Coast out to a Nebraska with a 1.9 percent unemployment rate. What is your observation? on Omaha, Lincoln, and the rest of it out to Cozad and beyond. I love Omaha. I mean, I, I'm so happy whenever I'm there. It's a fantastic city. And I think that um, one of the things that we're seeing is that the, the, the hospital and, and healthcare utilization of people getting COVID is still really high. So we would like to see higher vaccination rates in Nebraska as well. Um, and and it, it is a different it's a different environment, obviously, than Baltimore. Um, I still live in Baltimore, so um, you know I get I get a flavor of both. But uh, we'd love to see increased vaccination rates in in the more rural areas of Nebraska, um, in the city, and um, through the support of UNMC. There's big pushes to get more people vaccinated every single day. Lauren, it's been too long. It's always good to catch up with you, Lauren Sather of the University of Nebraska Medical Center. Thank you very much. This is a joy in studio with us, Ian Shepherdson, chief economist at Pantheon Macroeconomics. And what's so important about his focus on the United States is also the Pantheon Macroeconomics expertise on China. Uh, Craig Botham uh, doing that this morning in China. His morning note talks about the infrastructure push of China, and you clearly see a better China than the gloom that's out there. 
Well, uh, yeah, some of the gloom is quite extreme. Uh, China's got some really big problems, but it's it's not you know the end of the world. The uh, the, the loss of the real estate driven model for growth that they've had for so long uh, requires a shift into other areas, and infrastructure is clearly going to be one of them. So it's very early days, and obviously the real estate problems continue to roll on. Uh, this is going to be with us for a very long time. But China does have to find a different growth model to carry it through now that it's lost that impetus from, from real estate. With your wonderful perspective, I think of only Leland Miller at China Beige Book, who really has that dynamic going back and forth across the Pacific. How does the Chinese dynamics domestically affect your watch of the American economy? It's a problem for us in the U.S. because of the disruptions that are caused by China's zero COVID policy. So Mm -hmm. it disrupts our manufacturing, disrupts our logistic chains, disrupts our ports. And of course, with Omicron, potentially, they'll clamp down even more. China doesn't show any signs of stepping away from that zero COVID approach. And that means endless supply disruptions and supply chain problems for U.S. manufacturers and businesses seeking to import components or finished goods from China. So I don't see this going away. Uh, It's primarily a problem for the manufacturing sector. It's not the whole U.S. economy which is enthralled to the problems in China, but it's certainly not helpful at the margin. And the the Omicron cloud makes things even more difficult to see ahead. And that word endless is very different to the word that's been used all year, transitory. So I just wonder, a simple question, does the chairman have the time to wait? to sit this out and wait? I I think he does. uh, If he gets ahead of what's coming over the next few months and preps the markets for what's likely to be some really horrible inflation figures for November, December, January, then things start to get better. But at the moment, the Fed kind of seems reactive to these numbers rather than getting out front and saying to markets, hey, it's going to be bad, it's going to be worse. We might even see core inflation at I don't know, 6.5% potentially in in February. Then it drops very sharply. But it's a question of whether the Fed is prepared to dig in its heels and say, we're going to wait for the turn because we know it's coming, Uh, or or whether they feel that they have to respond maybe to take out something that they would call an insurance policy against transitory becoming more embedded. That certainly seems to be the way that they've gone with the taper. And if it weren't for Omicron, I'm sure they would be doubling the pace of the taper at the December meeting. Now, Now there's some uncertainty over that. Do you think they need to do that, Ian, to retain that optionality? On rates, do you think they need to go quicker? Uh, I don't think they. I don't think they have to because I'm really quite bullish about inflation in the medium term. I, I very much buy the idea that by the end of next year we're going to be looking back and saying, you know, really, what was all the fuss about? Especially in the goods sector, where I think we'll see a really dramatic turnaround. Uh, but the Fed can't necessarily assume that that's guaranteed to happen, and that's where this question of taking out an insurance policy, giving yourself some more room for manoeuvre just in case you're wrong, uh, becomes a more pressing question. And if it weren't for Omicron, yeah, they, they'd taper sooner, and that would open the door to a rate hike at some point in the second quarter, maybe as soon as March, so that, well, that would surprise me. I, I do think that there's still a substantial body of opinion within the Fed that thinks that they need to give it some more time, that they're pretty confident that the labour market is going to fix itself with mm-hmm. with rising participation over the next few months and ease some of that wage pressure. But of course, it might not. And if it doesn't, then you're looking back saying, well, you know, we should have been a bit more aggressive. So there's a real balancing act to be made there. Uh, And, uh, you know, right now, markets have got a pretty firm view of the way the Fed needs to go. But I'm not sure it's quite so clear cut yet. Ian, does maximum employment, that part of the dual mandate, not need to be redefined for a pandemic era economy? Well, this is a tricky one. Because what you know, they've never defined maximum employment in, in very explicit terms. So do they mean that the unemployment rate getting back to three and a half like mm-hmm. it was before COVID? Do they mean the employment population ratio returning to where it was before COVID? Do they mean the participation rate going back to where it was before COVID? They've, they've never really said. You know, and I, but I think that it's important to appreciate that Chair Powell has been very keen uh, for an, for a long time now about 
uh, reminding people how good the labour market was before COVID and how much he wants to get back to something that looks a lot like that before he would consider the full employment mandate to have been reached. Whereas some of his colleagues, I think, are a bit more gung-ho, uh, probably because they're more nervous about the inflation outlook than, uh, than Mr. Powell is. And there's a very split opinion on the Fed. And of course, we've got empty seats that need to be filled over the next few months. So we may well see the balance of power shifting, I think, in, in favour of the doves in Washington and maybe away from some of the more hawkish regional people. Well, if you game this out and take what people have said, the potential implications of the Omicron variant, again, there's things that we don't know. But if you have it exacerbating supply side challenges, feeding into those inflationary dynamics, at the same time, it maybe discourages people from re-entering the labor market. Will the Fed end up in a situation where it's forced to react to inflation, even if the labor market's not where it wants to be? Yeah, this is this is now a real risk that, that if Omicron keeps people out of the labor force who would otherwise have come back in, uh, easing this uh, supply demand imbalance that we've got right now with very, very high uh, wage growth. If, that, if, if Omicron stops that imbalance being shifted in favor of more supply, then the wage numbers won't slow down uh, in the way that the Fed needs them to be. And they'll, they'll be pushed into being more aggressive. But at the moment, you know, this is very premature. We don't know. We may find out over the next couple of weeks that this is a, a great deal of fuss about not very much, yeah. uh, in which case we're back on the, on the previous track. We're all speculating right now. Uh, and the message coming out of the Oxford vaccine people is different mm -hmm. to the message from the Moderna vaccine people. So nobody nobody really knows. And I, I do think that the Fed has maybe a bit more time uh, to deal with this than some people in markets think. I, I don't think the US is on the verge of some sort of sustained inflation explosion. I, I think patience is a virtue in central banking most of the time. Well, the, the, the patience is the key question. And Ian Shepardson, what it comes down to is ex ante, ex post. And the Latin is they're going to wait for the data. They're just going to wait and wait. Do, how, how much does the street right now, you know, just as a general statement, underestimate their ability to go ex post and to wait? Well, a lot. You know, markets, to me, it's a lot. Barely, yeah, it's massive. Markets are very, markets are very gung ho. Markets, <clears throat> markets always want things to change because volatility is where they make their money or lose their money. Exactly. Uh, and the Fed, however, you know, is not conducting policy on the basis of what might make people more money in markets. It's <laughs> conducting policy on the basis of what's in the national interest. And I think there's a strong case to be made for waiting. See how the labour market pans out over the next few months. Most of the the structural impediments to rising participation. Uh, have diminished now. Schools are reopened, childcare is reopened, the extended benefits are all over. Uh, COVID fear until Omicron maybe was fading away. So it's very reasonable to think that we're mm -hmm. going to see a big rush of people back into the labor force and ease some of those pressures. And if the Fed, you know, turns out to be wrong and those pressures don't ease, well, they've maybe lost three or four months, which which I very much doubt would be a medium term game changer. And I think it's also important that people remember that using monetary policy to deal with something uh, which is a, 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 a driven by a shock, the COVID shock. Uh, is the wrong response because policy works with a 12 to 18 month lag. That's far longer than the time frame that I think is reasonable to expect some of these COVID shocks to diminish. So you end up doing something which, uh, which, which proves to be a mistake, unless, of course, you're wrong and those labor market <laughs> pressures don't go away. But at the moment, it's too early to make that judgment. And I think they have more time than markets want to believe. I don't want to drown in semantics here, but I do think the following is important. Ian, isn't there an argument that actually now they're more forecast dependent than they are data dependent? That if you think about it, what they are relying on is their own forecast. The data itself, the incoming economic data, is already telling them that they're wrong and they have been wrong. Well, certainly the current inflation rate and the inflation rate over the next few months uh, is going to generate a lot more horrible headlines. There's no question about that. But of course, it's, it's not the job of monetary policy to try and fix today's headlines or tomorrow's headlines. It's the job of monetary policy to fix the headlines in 12 to 18 months' time. 
Now, sometimes today's headlines carry a lot of information about what they're going to look like in 12 to 18 months' time. But if you've got a shock rather than a an economic cycle that's generating the inflation numbers, then yeah. it's different. And it may well be that today's headlines are a terrible guide to what inflation will look like in 12 to 18 months' time, and therefore you shouldn't use them to drive policy. But <clears throat> the problem, of course, is that if you're wrong, uh, then you find yourself in a much worse position in 12 to 18 months' time, and you have to scramble to catch up to do what maybe you should have done much earlier. But we don't have perfect foresight. We have a great deal of uncertainty. Uh, and are, I think they can afford to wait a little bit longer. Are you talking about Newcastle? <laughs> yeah, I'm trying not to talk about well, Newcastle. Uh, every time you said a shock, Ian, I was thinking Newcastle. 13 <laughs> games, not a single win, facing relegation, a new owner. They want to spend in a couple of months. Can they? Can they get this done? Can they stay up? Uh, I think it's it's 50-50. I mean, there's been a definite improvement under the new manager, but he's only had two games. So I think we have to well, give, give him a bit of a chance. Yeah, to you two guys, and we could go all day on this, but to the two of you, is this another like Man U waiting to happen where a gazillion dollars is going to come in and completely change what you well, guys Tom, love? If yeah. I pick up the phone and say, here's a gazillion dollars, do you want to play for Manchester United? A lot of people might say, sure, Tom, I'll join you. If I pick up the phone and you say, here's a gazillion dollars, you've got to spend one year potentially in the league below the Premier League next year because we might get relegated Ian, that's a different proposition. You've got two yeah. massive gains coming up. Yeah. Norwich and Burnley, that's a relegation fight. Think yeah. about January. Ian, when they want to spend that money, you want to rebuild this business, this football club, how easy is it going to be to attract the talent in January? Well, if we lose these next two games, it's going to be extremely difficult because we'll be really, <clears throat> really adrift and we'll be looking very doomed. You and, 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 you know, no big star is going to come and want to play, you know, in, right. in Stoke on a Wednesday night in January. That's for sure. Are you, I have no idea what that means. Are you, the, are, are, you, are you the only one who actually cries watching Ted Lasso? Are you the only one in the room who cries watching Ted well, Lasso? Yeah, well, uh, 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 you know, Newcastle has, has, has been a source of misery in my life for the last 40 years. So, yeah. you know, another couple of years, I mean, what difference does it yeah, make? It's, 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 it's like he's a Red Sox fan from the 60s. Ian, it's good to see in person too. Great. Ian Shepherdson yeah, right. there, Ian, Pantheon Macroeconomics. Ian brought up that line from Oxford University, Tom. No evidence that Omicron <clears throat> defeats vaccines. Of course, no evidence that the opposite is true either, Tom. So we need to wait for the evidence and the data. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.